0: Hey everyone, welcome to another exciting episode of the Builders Build podcast. I'm your host, George pooh And today I'm so excited, so excited to introduce you a special guest who I consider to be a mentor of mine, as well as being an OG in fintech. So today's guest is Peter Hazelhurst, who's the co founder and CEO of SyncTerra. Peter have many fintech and tech experiences before starting SyncTerra, including being the CEO of Postmates and also the head of Uber Money, which make him really experienced to talk about things happening in fintech today and some advice for fintech and other tech founders.
1: So Peter, so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, George. Like I'm super thrilled to be able to support you in this podcast. It's been a fun journey for me in fintech and banking and all of this stuff for Gosh, nearly 30 years now. And there's been a lot of things that are different over time, but then there's stuff that stays the same. And most important part about this is the sense of community and friendship and relationships and working together on solving good problems. And I'm really grateful to be able to be connected with you and see your cool ideas coming to light. And if we can help you build them, so much the better. Either way, I think you're doing a stand-up job and I'm really thrilled and excited to be on the show with you. Yeah, thank you so much, Peter. I'm so
0: excited to have you on. So... Let me start by quoting an article from MasterCard. I think also includes, you. I think you wrote an article, Peter, or you're like a contributor of the article. It says, new banks are convenient, but making banking feel effortless requires some
1: serious behind the scenes work. So that's the unquote. So is that what Sintera does? I think that's a pretty good summarization. Basically, our mission in life is to effectively build this concept like Shopify for banking. So before I joined Uber, I was running a wine startup. And my wine startup was super fun, best job ever. And and we launched on Shopify a simple inventory thing. You could see our brand logo. We launched a website and it was kind of cool. And you could buy wine and we would ship it to you and so on. And I didn't know anything about building an e-commerce website. I'd used them before. I'd shopped at Amazon, but like, how do I build it? But then what was really fun is like when we, as a nerd, I wanted to expand upon it and make it more complicated or make it more feature rich, not complicated. Mm-hmm. You never want complicated e exactly. commerce. And so, we. the nice thing about Shopify is it has a set of APIs and you could extend things, you could change the checkout flow and so on. And that's what we want to do with our support of community neobanks. So, we, our, one of our first launch customers was a fintech called Sincere. Think of it as a neobank for people that love it. I colloquially call them Pet Bank. And Rob's a great founder and has spent a lot of time in tech doesn't really know anything about banking, doesn't want to know and would love us to solve everything for him. Mm. And so in that case, he's like me running my wine startup. I did not know anything about e-commerce, but Shopify helped me. What we're doing at Singtera is helping Rob build his neobank with everything from payments to account management, to credits and all that sort of stuff, and connecting him up to a bank that builds the tax, the banking strategy on the back end. So we do both sides of a market. At the same time, we also have really sophisticated engineers and product founders and companies that want to expand their business from whatever they do today to something including fintech or banking as a service or whatever. And so we have this sort of dual strategy of founders that just want something to magically work to really sophisticated that want to have all the bells and whistles and the ability to control the payment flow and so on. And that's what Syncterra is. It's that platform that takes anybody from any stage in their awareness and sophistication of fintech through to building a product, whether it's moving money for payments or making money, making a debit card for people that love pets and cats and so forth. That's what we do. But the second part of this thing is helping community banks come into the ecosystem. So what's really interesting is with the growth of fintech, there's been a need for more and more support from banks to to support the launches. And we're, we're slightly unique or we're pretty advanced in helping new community banks approach the market and come into the market and be a sponsor bank in the market. And the challenge for them is they run on some legacy core banking system. And bear in mind, I wrote a core banking system in 93 and it's considered modern. And so, and I don't know if you can see air quotes on the podcast, but modern is air quotes. And And the crazy thing is many of these banking systems are 40 years old, 50 years old and they didn't know what the internet was back then let alone fintech and all that stuff and so bolting on fintech services onto those cores is quite challenging and it, but if as a banker if you're a community banker and you're in Mason City Iowa what do you know about fintechs and communities and stuff like this your legacy relationship with Fiserv or FIS it kind of works you got a couple of branches everything's okay and along comes Syntera or someone and says hey we've got this crazy fintech that wants to launch a bank for people that love Pellegrino and sparkling water. And the bankers, I don't understand. How can that a <laughs> But is that really a thing? It cannot be. And we're like, yeah, they've got a wait list of 150,000 users. It's going to be big. And bear in mind, the bank itself has 10,000 customers, wow. right? Yeah, that's insane. And so our job is to help that bank scale, build new solutions to compliance and regulatory risk and all of those sorts of things, do basic operations, right? So mem- remember, almost all of their operational capabilities are outsourced. FISA or someone else they don't process their own credit cards or debit cards someone does that for them mm-hmm. and yet if they're going to support these fintechs they have a regulatory responsibility to actually make sure that the fintechs don't get in trouble and so our job is to bridge that gap fintechs over here banking's really hard how do we help them do that and how do we pull it together That's yeah it. and for di- probably the long pause
0: <laughs> i think the quote was better <laughs> the quote is definitely better yeah the full disclosure i'm a our customer as well I have no idea how banking banking infrastructure works. I'm personally from Canada. Our clients are from the US. So really difficult to figure out how the compliance stuff work. And I have to say, I think Peter, you and your team has really figured out like how to get a fintech solution from day zero to day one to launch. I think everything you guys have prepared for the founder, like compliances and creating a templates for compliance and making sure that founders can stay compliant. I think those things are really well done. So how do you, how do, like Peter, do you know how banking works when you start Singtera? Are you a banking expert?
1: How do you figure everything out? So I think it's a combination of stuff, right? So you learn a bunch of stuff by osmosis, right? So I, I started when in 93, we built a core banking system. And, and in doing that, we helped community banks, really small ones to start with. Our first customer was in Mason City, Iowa. I keep bringing them up fcmb and then we grew and grew and as we grew our banks got bigger so they had five branches 10 branches 50 branches and then we were there at the start of the internet which is kind of insane so we launched internet banking in 1995 nobody like there wasn't even ssl yet people was like 56 bit ssl which you could hack with your <laughs> iphone in about 3 seconds and so we did that. We launched ATMs, we launched virtual banking and all of these sorts of things. And over time, we then launched globally and we added support for different countries and so on. So you learn a bit of stuff about community banks. Mm-hmm. Then over time I transitioned and I came to work at a company called Yodli. And what we did was online banking for the really big banks, B of A, Chase, Wells, everyone. And that's completely different. The users were the same, they just, their expectations and the way you interact with the bank changes. So with a community bank you're and the core banking system, you're the nucleus. What you do matters. For the big banks, they've got a thousand times more people than you do. What was Chase's budget this year? 10 billion in IT mm-hmm. just f- for banking. Uh-huh. And if you think of all the money invested in fintech, it was probably less than 10 billion. Yeah, Right. exactly. And so we worked with these big folks and they teach you how to do stuff at scale with millions of users versus hundreds of users. And so you learn that then I spent some time at Google where we launched Tap and Pay and Google Wallet and Pay by Gmail and so forth. And that was very different. So that was like learning how to be a public brand company direct to consumer. Prior to my life at Google, everything I had done was supporting enterprises, building stuff for their customers. Google was direct to consumer, which was really different. Mm-hmm. Then I did a whole bunch of startups, which were crazy and fun, like my white startup. And then the last gig, where, which was a little bit of an intersection of payments and banking and everything else was Uber. And you can imagine is super complicated. It's 24 seven. You've got payments happening in every currency. You can imagine we've got wallets everywhere. You've got all these different interactions. And so I guess when we started sync Terra, there were two things that were important to me. One is to leverage all of that knowledge and value of working at different parts of the ecosystem from buyer to builder to seller, to then also work with some great people that knew the space as well. So the people on my team are way smarter than I am in every respect. We have an amazing compliance lady, woman, her name's Sarah, and she knows everything there is to know as chief compliance officer. And like, do I know all the rules around compliance? No, (laughs) I kind of think I know like most of them, but when it comes to reading the law, she's a lawyer, she understands this stuff way better than I do. That's very interesting.
0: And I do want to touch on more about like your founding team. Like Peter, you said you have an amazing team. I do want to touch on because you have so much experience in the tech and fintech world, when you decided you want to start Singtera, what is the process like of getting your
1: co-founder team and getting the most initial team on board? So Singtera's founding was quite interesting. So the founding of Singtera was actually done by an, a Canadian incubator called Diagram. And Diagram sort of rolls up into Portage and all of these holding companies, cigar and so forth. And I think the main parent company is a thing called the Power Corporation in Canada. And, and Diagram had this hypothesis that there was the need for a compliance management platform for community banks. Mm -hmm. They invested in that idea. This was in April of 2020. They hired one of my now co-founders, Dominic, as a product person to lead the design of whatever compliance would be. They had a partnership with Coastal Community Bank and Eric Sprink, who was an early investor. And they set about thinking about building a compliance thing. I didn't know anything about the company until, as I was leaving Uber in sort of June, July of 2020, I got a call from this amazing fintech. I call him the fintech horse whisperer. His name is John Pomerantz. He, run, he works at a company called TrueSearch. And he said, Peter, there's this amazing company. You should talk to them. They're going to build compliance software. And I was like, hold your horses. I have no interest in doing compliance software under any circumstances. Not going to happen. He's said, oh, really? It's a really cool idea. They already have a customer. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> no, not really. And he said, will you at least meet one of the lead investors, this guy, Paul? So I met with Paul, and it was really great. And uh, and he said, "What do you think of your idea?" And I was like, oh, "I don't know. It's not that great of an idea. Or it might be awesome idea if you're if you want to build a compliance company. I didn't want to do that." And he said, well, "What would you like to do?" And I was like, "Well, having just launched Uber Money and understood like the complexities and the challenges of having a big BD team and legal team and all this sort of stuff, I know how hard it is to build a neo bank. And if you could make it really easy for a founder, as easy as Shopify." And you had a solution to the supply chain problem, which is there wasn't enough banks. That might be a cool company. And that was sort of Juneish, July-ish. And then I met with Chris, my other co-founder, online. And they were part of this network of folks connected to Diagram. And with, what do you guys think? Do you think this is real? And I hadn't really met either of them before. And we said, Yeah, I think it's real. And I said, Look, I'm not starting a company if we haven't met in person. And remember, this is the darkest days of COVID. And so we flew to Boulder. Chris flew from Canada, knowing that when he came home he would have to spend 14 days in his basement in co- in quarantine. Actually he had to spend at a hotel. He wasn't even allowed to go home at that time. And Dominic flew in from Chicago. We landed in Denver. Mm-hmm. Denver was a hopping airport. I'd left San Francisco. There was like three people in the entire airport. <laughs> Denver was oh. And I was like, where are all these people coming from? It's you know, don't you know that there's COVID out there? We rented a car. We're wearing a mask the whole time we made our way out to boulder and we chose boulder because it was considered the least COVIDy part of america nice. at the time and uh, finally i was like look i have to give you guys a hug i can't do this we're either in it all in or not and so we had a hug we we worked in a WeWork work at the time the WeWork work had little circles on the table showing you how far apart you had to sit and all this sort of stuff it was p- pretty petrifying and then i was like all right i think this is happening and so my I, I finished up my time at Uber, started SyncTerra, I think, September 21, 2020, and proceeded to raise a seed round in late October, early November. And it was fun. It was really fun. Getting the team off the ground, building the team, hiring all the other leaders and building the team out has been a really joyous experience. Yeah. Not without stress. Like, it's pretty stressful right now as we're ramping revenue. Mm-hmm. But it's fun. Yeah. as a founder,
0: I can understand why you're like oh. <laughs> you deciding to start when someone pitch you to start a new start. I definitely feel the same way. So Peter, I do want to navigate. I think you mentioned it is a stressful time for you guys for the good, because you're bringing more customers. But for broader fintech market and for the tech market, it has been pretty uncertain for a lot of companies, right? Since the Federal Reserve raised the rates, I think a lot of economic downturn for tech has been happening. Tech companies are entering a difficult period. At the time of recording, I think global fintech founding fell about 33% and a number of deals for fintechs are dropped 17%. So Peter, you personally wrote an article or a post on LinkedIn. It is about P. Sherman, 42, will B. way Sydney, and finding Nemo. I
1: really love the post, but for our audience who don't know the post, tell us more about the post and your thoughts. So it's really fun. I have an amazing team, and we think about what we're going to contribute to the ecosystem. And And I'm lucky that we have a pretty good network of folks that we talk to and can reach on LinkedIn. And for me, the learning of when things are seem like they're out of control, being focused and being connected to your mission and your vision is perhaps the most important thing. And if you can avoid the distraction and the malaise and the challenges of everything around you and still keep building, opportunity abounds. If you think back to 2008, it was pretty, pretty tough times. The recession and the economy was in a really bad spot. And yet Amazing things got created at that time, and I think there's sort of a generalized pattern that, in these troughs of economic or global uncertainty, the really great founders find cool things to work on and to be creative, and ex- and take advantage of it. The best investors pile in during this time. Remember, like the Warren Buffetts of the world, were bankrolling Goldman Sachs, and look at that return on investment. He like save them from bankruptcy, effectively. He piled money into Apple back then. And it, what's really interesting to me is to look at the big global investors, the Tigers, the Additions, the General Catalysts and so forth. Our investors, Lightspeed, et cetera, Finvc. And notice that the opportunity they have is to buy into great companies at a more appropriate price, perhaps, than some of the craziness that had ramped up over the last couple of years. And I think, a return to quality is happening but what's important if you're a builder like me is you, as much as you can you've got to try and avoid spending too much time thinking about what's happening around you because if you know your product is right and I'm really confident what we're building is the right thing then you just got to build it and you got to get your customers you got to help them through their journey and we need to be creative on pricing and we need to be creative on engagement models and if we'd hope to get paid our minimums in three months and we push it back to four months, that's okay. But for me, staying on target, staying where you're going, not allowing yourself to drift is really critical.
0: Okay. And I think, I think Peter, you raise a good point about not allowing yourself to drift. I think a lot of founders now worry about runways, worry about their payrolls, hitting payrolls every month. Like those are, I guess, like not a distraction but something necessarily people have to be concerned about. So what are your thoughts about some changes that founders can consider
1: implementing, or do you think there's no need to make too many changes? I think with these sort of challenges, there's always an opportunity to see what things you can do differently and how you can operate better and more efficiently and more smartly. When equity or fundraising is easy, you tend to be less disciplined around, is this, do I really need this new person on my team? Is this tool the thing that I need right now or can I wait three months? And the premise and the mantra of growth at any cost is no longer true. And so what that forces for many folks is a better focus on what's really driving the business, what matters, understanding your customers' needs and being aligned with those customers' needs because if they're growing, you're growing. If you're in the enterprise space. If you're in B2C, then you're really thinking about what can you do for your consumers as to help them be successful. So I think my advice to founders is definitely understand your runway and how much space you have. If you can raise money, I would. Don't be super stressed about dilution right now. You'd be more stressed about existence six months, 12 months from now. Do I think people need four years of runway? No. If you're planning that far into the future, I challenge anyone to say they even know what their product roadmap is 12 to 18 months from now. Mm-hmm. But two years of runway, that's a pretty good idea if you can get there. And if not, when you do your next fundraising, tailor that fundraising to give you that more buffer as you go into it. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's relatively less likely that the days of six-month fundraisers, which were kind of the norm in FitTech, six and 12-month cycles raise, I don't think that's coming back anytime soon on the flip side the businesses that are doing well will continue to fundraise and will continue to have access to capital because you have a bunch of investors that need to put the money to work somewhere and what they're doing is making more quality judgment. Yeah, and
0: I think in terms of, Peter, you just mentioned about 2008, I think a lot of young founders may have remembered that, may have. But I think another one you have personal experience is a 2000 tech recession, where I think you were were CTO at multiple startups from 1991 to 2003, and you experienced both those downturns. I think shares more experience about what it was like during those downturns and how you feel like this one would be different or in strength length or anything else. Well,
1: I think, so compared to dot-com with the fintech growth that's happened over the last couple of years, there was this sort of loose assertion that we're in this dot-com, it's like a dot-com bubble. And I think the difference between now and then was the fact that ideas that are coming to market right now take a lot less capital to build and you can prove and get real market fit and judgment very quickly. Like back in 99, 2000, it was kind of manic, right? Mm -hmm. You could have a, PowerPoint deck and they were all PowerPoint. There was no Google Sheets or Google Slides back then. You could have a PowerPoint deck and raise $50 million, $100 million just on the deck. And because the internet was new, there were all these crazy ideas. Mm Pets.com. Of course there's Pets.com. Why wouldn't there be a Mm Pets.com? And a lot of really cool ideas were clearly five to ten years to Mm work. Webvan is the perfect perfect example where literally the idea of Webvan is replaced by Instacart today, and it works today, and it didn't work then. And the unit economics of anybody in the delivery space are really tough, but they're actually at least viable because your technology has accelerated. Mobile phones have changed. You've got GPS. You've got all these sort of services that back in 99, 2000 didn't exist. So the corollaries of rapid inflated valuations feels the same as it was back in 99, but the difference is the companies are more likely to be real and and that's really exciting. Uh, so that's what's different about that. I think more interesting was going through 9-11 and, and .com felt more of a largely a US phenomena, meaning most of Silicon Valley was just manic and crazy. And whereas when, with 9-11, it was the whole world that suddenly shut down travel, suddenly shut down all of these things blocked businesses from growing and being stable so i don't know i've ridden the through i've been through a bunch of these experiences and what's fun is realizing that there are things you can learn from them and things you can develop and grow and what i like to be able to do is to help founders who haven't experienced these things firsthand sort of have a steady hand on the tiller so they don't float their boat randomly in different directions and if possible help them point out things that they are going to break by mistake because they just didn't experience it before
0: and i think peter you advise a lot of companies so just have to point it out there like you spend a lot of your time advising helping companies and also being like a mentor for many sintera companies who are using sintera including my startup so really appreciate that i think you spend a lot of time with founders My dude, peter what you talk about like for delivery startups when it was founded in the 1990s it was a bit too early so it works now so is that where we are with crypto and web3 are there solutions are do you see similarities between those two
1: i'm somewhat skeptical of crypto i have to say i think for me crypto and blockchain in general has potential for promise but it has not actually found a use case in my mind that really moves the needle back in 99 2000 there was this Huge transformation that was going to happen to the internet, which might sound like web three today, but back then it was the, the semantic web was the name of it. So basically the web going from HTML to XHTML and XML. Okay. And everybody's creating domains and schemas from everything from fintech to supply chain and so forth. And the whole web was going to change hundred percent, 99, 2000. And I rode the bandwagon. I worked on a cool project called DNA for financial services with Microsoft and KPMG. And we created a whole schema to represent banking and fintech and all of this stuff. And sure enough, nothing actually happened. It didn't XML sort of was useful for a while. People were doing schema and then we moved to JSON and all of that stuff. And to me, skeptical as I am, Web3 feels like a lot of rehashing of a lot of those thinking processes around if we all just agree on a spec, we can decentralize things and trust each other to do the right thing. The hard part for me about that with people's money. Is decentralization doesn't actually solve trust. Yep. Because at the core of it, the as as much as it's difficult to understand why spending works with credit cards, when things go wrong, you can call someone and they will give you your money back. And what we've seen with all of the crypto meltdowns over the last few weeks and months is if everyone's leveraged and invested in each other, there's no one to call. And if you do call them, people just say, hey, sorry, the DAO made a choice. It's not me. I'm independent of this thing. And so I think what's yet to be proven for me is a use case where I'd say, gee, I'm glad there's crypto or blockchain behind that thing. Because I think you can solve most use cases simpler and easier with existing solutions right now. Mm -hmm. The classic example is everybody saying, well, wouldn't it be cool to put your house on the blockchain as an asset? I'm like, that's cool. And I don't know if you watched the interview with Marka where the guy was like basically saying, if I buy your house on the blockchain, that's cool. But do you think the local sheriffs are going to come over and help me evict you when you choose not to honor that purchase? Mm-hmm. And the answer is no, because you, we can all agree on what the blockchain can and cannot record. But unless the rest of our infrastructure in life Accept that these are the new norms of documentation and that you don't need a trust document and you don't need conveyance of the house and so forth. No one's actually going to support you. And I think this is a really interesting time for us to figure out how to intersect this new technology and stack, which has potential, but actually intersected into real life. Because right now it's very limited in utility to use cases that seem trustless. But buying a house, unfortunately, is a trust game right? Mm -hmm. Like if I sell my house here in Silicon Valley and unbeknownst to the buyer, I don't actually own the land. Yeah, That's kind of an important fact pattern. Mm -hmm. And so then it takes somebody to build this trust-based system to record all of that information. And where are they going to get it from? They're going to go back to the old records from the title companies and it's back to the same Zoom loop. So anyway, I, I guess I'm relatively on record as the crypto curmudgeon. I hope something comes out that'll be really awesome. I've yet to experience it myself. I think Peter,
0: like one argument I think crypto people who are in crypto can make is that there are so many bigger businesses that are now adapting and using crypto, including PayPal, Square, Cash App, right? So is that an example of crypto will become more common, more have more use cases in the future? Or do you think that's just struggling to find a use case and getting more users for the businesses?
1: I think that even while there's people that want to store or keep crypto as an asset, being able to exchange that asset between people is a useful use case. Mm-hmm. But I struggle with why a Bitcoin-backed debit card is more valuable to me than a bank account-based debit card. Other than the fact that I have Bitcoin and I want to spend it. But I think there's a really good analogy which is, or a challenge, which is if you when Coinbase launched their debit card, which is super cool, it had a 2.49% cost for liquidating your Bitcoin to make your spend. Which if you've got Bitcoin assets, maybe you don't care. But if your bank charged you 2.5% to spend your money at the grocery store, you'd be pretty annoyed. And then the second part about it was if you didn't like the bananas and you got home and you wanted to return them, great. If it's checking account, you get your cash back. But if it's Bitcoin, you get your cash back. You don't get your Bitcoins back at the previous price. <laughs> And this is the interesting challenge of FX or effective FX with crypto and stuff like that. So I do think there are more people using it than before, but I still feel it's quite, I don't think we've got into any sort of mainstream business flows on a basis of that. I think PayPal and others have made it much easier to acquire it. Cash apps making it easier to spend it and share it, which are great. But fundamentally, it's just P2P. Mm
0: Okay. Okay. That's interesting. So I, okay, next topic, Peter, I want to talk more about the evolution of money and fintechs. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that you're very qualified to give us your thoughts. So two decades ago, we were using cash, as I thought. 10 years ago, we're using cards, and now we're using crypto more. So where do you think we're heading towards in the future? What kind of evolution of money or fintech is going to come up?
1: Well, it's so interesting. So one of the things that surprises many people is to realize that 40% of trips on Uber are still paid for in cash okay. on a worldwide basis. Okay. So yes, there's always a transition to digital ways of paying, whether it's debit cards, credit cards, tap and pay, and so forth. And there's, I think there's been an interesting aspect of what happened with COVID is less physical use of currency for many markets and the acceleration of Apple Pay and Google Pay and paying with taps and paying with QR and stuff like that. But in many markets, that acceleration already happened five years ago because they never actually had checking accounts and stuff. And it's a lot like the transition for many countries that bypassed home phones and just went straight to mobile or sell other phones. So I think there's going to be a continuous trend towards more digital purchases and payments. And if the form of payment, the actual unit of currency is crypto, that's great. So I think that trend is inevitable. Will we ever get away from cash 100%? I don't think so. I think there will always be a use case for it. It'll just be less over. screen side, Peter. So now I want to go to one of our final topics, which is building to
0: scale. I think, Peter, there are many guests and founders coming into the show who are in the earlier stages and never had, I guess, exits or experiencing scale. My thing Sintero, of course, is still early stages, of course. But you have worked yeah. at many firms who are at the breakout stage or at the growth stage, like with Uber and with Postmates. So what was the experience? So what was it like to experience scale firsthand? Because it's so rare for people like me to experience.
1: I think for me, Uber was by far the the most complicated and interesting business. And the scale was like astronomical. But I think that one of the interesting learnings is if you many interactions with consumers at Uber, we had hundreds of millions of interactions a month where people were getting a trip or buying food or whatever. It became really valuable to figure out the optimizations you could do even at the most micro thing and the most micro beneficial one of the things we were lucky to have at uber was an amazing data science team led by mark on my team mark belvedere and one of the hypotheses we had was could we let a rider ride on uber even if we knew their debit card was bad and we would see this all the time people would try and swipe and their card would be declined because maybe they were over the limit or whatever and we had this really interesting hypothesis that said, what if we just let them ride? Will they pay us back? And so we launched this amazing feature that was informed by a bunch of analytics and data science that said, our top 20%, 30% of riders will let you ride even if your debit card says you're out of money. And we'll just say, we gave you this trip for free. We're not for free. We want you to pay us back, but we didn't want to disrupt your day. Please come back tomorrow and pay us out. And we were lucky to have the scale to be able to see the patterns to say that was a good choice and it was amazingly successful because we got a whole bunch of customers that previously wouldn't have ridden on us that might have then dual apt and gone over to lyft or somebody else and we created a ton of goodwill from a feature that if you and i had known each other in person i'd have spot you the 20 bucks to ride home in your uber but because you're in this invisible machine there wasn't that dynamic and Scaling allows you to do that. At the same time, the cost of making a mistake or things that you can do better are amplified by volume and scale. And so everything, all your decisions have a different sort of set of considerations, whether you're doing something just for Sydney, Australia, or you're doing it for all of Australia, or doing it all of the world, or just Southeast Asia. And that was what was really awesome about Uber, because you could choose to launch stuff globally, you could choose to launch stuff in certain countries, and, Understanding the consequences of that became a really interesting discipline. So I don't know, Uber was really fun from a scale perspective, and it just kept going. It never stopped. And when we're doing startups like Singtera, we're all excited about 10x week over week growth and that sort of thing. And Uber went through that phase and now is in the sort of one to two x week over week growth, which is still insane. But when a, when your operating business is doing thousands of trips per minute. Everything just has to work. And the attention to detail is a really different game when you've got scale behind you. And in your opinion, has Sanctera reached scale yet? Or are you guys still... Definitely not. We're very much at our early stages. I think we're a good year and two years away from really understanding scale in our business, which is really fun. And so for me, there's teams that are really good zero to one, get the idea, get to MVP, get to launch. There are teams that actually do really well from one to 100, one to 200 in terms of scaling. And then the really... Amazing teams take from 200 to a million. We're in that one to 100 space right now, which is really fun. And what I personally enjoy is trying to help the team grow so that they'll also be the right team for 200 to a million. And we can bring in really interesting talent that augments our different attributes and skills. Hmm. But it's hard. It's hard to find the right team member that can scale across all of those domains. It's hard to build the right technology. And so a lot of teams think, i got to build for a million users. When they start, the answer is don't do that. The answer is build for a hundred users, build to 5,000 users. And then each time you go through these thresholds, figure out the next solution. I was talking to the team this morning and good news is we've got like a lot of activity on our platform, but our cloud bills are expensive. And there's this balance of, do you solve the economics, the unit economics early or late? And if you're lucky and you've got a reasonable amount of capital, you can afford to solve unit economics later and allow yourself to scale into your numbers. And what the challenge is always decision of, is this a today problem, a next month problem or a next year problem? And scaling is that constant analysis of, Hey, you really got to fix this right now because it's blowing up and we don't have a choice.
0: Yeah. It's about saving multiple fires at once, even when you're scaling. So I think. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's super interesting. So Peter, what's next for SYNCTERRA? Let's see in the next three to five years, you've
1: mentioned about scale, but what is your vision for SYNCTERRA for the future? I think. For me, it's clearly our execution strategy around building the fastest and easiest way to build the future of fintech. And if we get that, what I'm excited about is seeing all the crazy innovation that just gets built on our platform. I'm very envious of John and Patrick when they started Stripe, because they started in a nucleus of, we've got this really cool idea. We don't really know how people are going to use it, but we're going to give it to everyone and see what happens. And some amazing companies in fintech were created on the backs of their platform which was really awesome and no one could have predicted all the cool things that people could do if you could make it easier to do a payment banking is in some ways more complicated than just payments it's a superset and banking is super hard and if we can make it really easy for people to try and experiment i'm so thrilled and excited to see what people come up with including you George. <laughs> i want to see what you thank do. you
0: peter yeah i'm pretty excited to see syntera becoming the next stripe for everything banking. So thank you so much, Peter. I think I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for your, all your advice on the down, like the econ- economy and what's happening around us. I think it's
1: really reassuring coming from you. So thanks a lot for coming on the show today, Peter. Thank you, George. And look, I hope it's helpful for your listeners to to get this information. There's no crystal ball. I, I very much hope some of the bigger problems in the world right now, including the Russian invasion of Ukraine, resolve themselves sooner, because there's so so many people suffering and we as a group of people and a country and a planet we need to excuse me dog we need to reduce this this chaos and get back into the business of supporting each other and loving one another rather than our current fractious state right now which is really stressful and i'm particularly disappointed in All of the changes that are happening at the supreme court and the removal of the rights of women to be in charge of their own bodies i think there are so many things we could do better and we get frustrated in our own global conscience here and i hope we can all align around some really great values to make a better place for everyone and if in the very small way fintech can help that and help foster people to be better than themselves that would be great yeah
0: thank you so much peter I, and I cannot thank you more for what you said i think we need to unite as fintech unite as tech unite as the whole world right whole countries to be able to make what well, we are a better place where we live in a better place so thank you so much peter yeah for coming to the show my pleasure um, thanks, thanks for thank having you. me Builders Build, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by George Poo and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Builders Build content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit Bluemex.io to join us on Discord.